Hi, everybody. This is Alex Romanovich, and welcome to Global Edge Talk. Today is June 5th, 2020, and we are delighted and privileged to have Farzana Baduel with us. Uh, hello, Farzana. Hello, Alex. I will tell you a little bit more about Farzana, but all of the talking is going to be done by her. Uh, Farzana is the founder and CEO of the Curzon PR. She's also a very passionate advocate of multicultural and open strategic communications. She teaches at Oxford University. She is a practitioner of public relations and communications in UK, but also all over the world. She's traveled all over the place, all over the world. And she is one of the top entrepreneurs in UK and outside of UK when it comes to you know, PR, communication, so forth. She's also a, uh, a leader in, uh, uh, with the Muslim community in, in PR and communications as well. She is a recipient of multiple awards, uh, one of which is a Business Woman of the Year at the Muslim Awards 2016 and many others. We're very delighted to have Farzana with us. So, Farzana, let's talk a little bit about you, of all people. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about yourself, because you're, you, you know, uh, Global Edge Talk is about personalities, first and foremost. We absolutely love to learn from entrepreneurs, uh, people who are edgy, but also on the edge, and have experienced a lot of interesting things in their life and their professional career. Tell us a little bit about your younger years, you know, about your growing up and your passion for PR communications, your passion for, you know, for what you're doing right now. Well, I was born in London um, and, you know, London is an incredible city because it is, it is diverse. I mean, you walk down a street in London and you hear a dozen different languages, people, you know, you, you walk past um, all these groups of people and, you know, they look like, uh, they look like an advert for the United Nations. I mean, you know, I'm blessed to have been born in a city like London. And, um, and so because I was born in London and my parents came from Pakistan, from Kashmir, um, I immediately was really brought up in terms of my formative years, in an incredibly diverse environment where I thought that was the norm. And then only when I would like perhaps leave London to venture out in the shires um, in the UK or, or go to another country, you know, like say Pakistan or, you know, or wherever. And then it would strike me, these very homogenous societies. And, and, and I remember when I started traveling when I was sort of 10, and I remember thinking, my God, the world is not actually like London. And so, um, so it was, it was quite incredible when I started traveling and I started, you know, noticing that actually you have very homogenous in terms of the culture, um, all these different countries and actually the UK and the US are actually quite incredible countries when you think about the level of diversity that's there. And, you know, it, it's, it's somewhat of a bit of a social experiment because it's really the first time in history that this level of cultural diversity exists in societies. And of course you have, you know, positive moments like Obama being elected and you have, you know, sad moments such as what has been happening right now through, you know, Black Lives Matter. So I'm not saying it's this utopia, but at least it's, it's a hopeful future that we are working towards and struggling towards. Um, but I think, you know, for me, diversity is intoxicating. And I, I love coming across people from different cultures, different languages, different perspectives. Um, you know, for me, it, it's literally like a drug. Um, so I've always 
had that openness ever since um, I can remember. Very interesting. And uh, obviously being in London or being in New York, you do experience this diversity. And uh, my years working in a multicultural agency, advertising agency, I've experienced the same thing. I was joking sometimes that I'm I'm in there for the food and I absolutely (laughs) love it. Right. And I, every time I, I uh, that's why I love New York. And every time I go to London, I experience the same thing. Um, tell us more about Oxford. Tell us more about how you got involved with teaching, with uh, training, uh, your work with entrepreneurs, but also your work with a lot of governments um, in Asia, in Europe, uh, all over the world. Uh, that's a yeah. very interesting topic. So, so with uh, so Oxford University, they have an entrepreneurship center, and um, and they allow students, um, undergrads and postgrads, who have a business idea, to come to the entrepreneurship center and really work upon their idea from conception to startup uh, to raising finance. And so, um, so I always used to give. I always used to sort of give the odd lecture on public relations, marketing, brand to various different sort of um, teaching institutions, and I was and I was invited by King's College to do the same. And the lady left King's College Entrepreneurship Centre to set up the one in Oxford and invited me. And the Entrepreneurship Centre, the foundry, was actually launched by Tim Cook a couple of years ago. And um, and then they invited me to be their resident public relations expert, which basically means, you know, on a monthly basis, a few times um, a, a month, I basically go there and I mentor. I also hold masterclasses in brand marketing, public relations. And really, I work with the startups to help them understand what is brand, what is marketing, what is PR, how does it apply to them. Um, it's not just a, a tool just to use in terms of raising, um, uh, you know, sort of investors and to you know, clean up their investor decks, but actually it is a very sort of integral to their business and their leadership uh, success. Um, and I've been doing it for two years. And I must say that initially I thought teaching was just going to be one way that I teach them. But my God, I learned so much more from them than they get from me. Um, and because they are obviously incredibly bright, uh, it actually spurs me to learn more and more about my craft because, you know, I can give them a lecture and they ask so many insightful questions that I don't have the answers to. And so for the last two years, it's been also my learning journey where I'm learning across neuroscience, psychology, the underpinnings of public relations so that I can teach more effectively um, and actually keep up with the students because they are incredibly bright and curious minds. And it's, you know, it's wonderful to be able to work with them. I have so many interesting questions to ask you and uh, I'm I'm looking forward to this. Uh, So let's get a little bit more controversial about some of the topics that we're seeing right now. Hmm. Um, Obviously we're watching what's happening all over the world uh, with COVID. You know, that's a, that's a huge impact on all businesses on, um, uh, on the way they operate, on the way they communicate and so forth. On top of this, in the United States, we have now a situation where the entire country is polarized, the entire country is um, stressed, the entire country is in chaos, mayhem. Um, um, you know, I have no words for that. What are your words for this? Tell me. You know, it's, I, I find it absolutely shocking 
because I love America and I spent my childhood all my summers in America. And I always used to be inspired by the African-Americans because being brought up as a brown girl in a white society in the UK, you know, my sense of pride came from actually listening to their music videos on MTV. And it sounds so silly, but I just thought, my God, these people are so interesting and cool and America seems so cool. And, you know, and it, it's heartbreaking for people like us around the world who look up to America with hope, especially after the Obama years, um, you know, and it's heartbreaking for us to see America and see how COVID-19 has really opened up these, um, you know, opened up, almost lifted the curtain on the injustices. And of course, we heard about, you know, Rodney King, and we heard that this is, um, has been happening over 400 years. But now with the advent of smartphones, it's being captured. And so there's a woman, I think, was in New York, and she was walking a dog and, and an African-American man, he confronted her you know, in a very dignified yes. way. Yep. And Absolutely. she started threatening him. I'm going to call the police and hyperventilating and pretending, oh, yes, you know, I'm being threatened by a black man. I was just absolutely shocked. And, you know, this was an educated woman working in finance. You know, so there was like absolutely, it was, it was awful. And then the black man who was jogging and, and, and shot dead and then, and then the police. And, you know, we had an issue with um, the British police um, with uh, Stephen Lawrence where justice wasn't served and, and, you know, and there was a reaction. But what I see happening in America, um, it, 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 frankly, it breaks my heart and I don't understand it because, you know, America was meant to be this great hope for the whole world. It was meant to be this, you know, what other country has been built upon mass immigration? This is meant to be our hope. And this is what's happening. And I think obviously when you look at history, there's a pendulum string, a, a, a pendulum swing. You have Obama that made us all feel so inspired that America is truly a world leader. And we aspire to be a society that allows a minority um, you know, person to become president and leader of the free world. But then my God, how it then swung just so regressively to Trump. And I think that swing from Obama to Trump, um, I think it really, it's destabilizing for us to know that the world leader, uh, America, can swing so far. Tell me, uh, you've traveled all over the world. You've uh, dealt with a number of different governments. Uh, yeah. whether it's in Pakistan or other Asian countries or Italy or Spain or UK. Yeah. Um, what is the perception, do you think, what is the perception of America right now um, with those governments, with those countries? Uh, I'm just curious to, to, to understand from your perspective, knowing those people, working with them on a regular basis, what do you think is the, how, how we're being viewed? I think generally a lot of people, a lot of um, conversations that I'm party to is the uncertainty um, that it's difficult to really create long-term plans um, when the leadership of America is, um, you know, is, is difficult to predict. Um, you know, you just don't know what he's going to do next. And it's literally like, it's almost like actually you're taking um, magic mushrooms and you're on a bad trip and you just don't know what's going to happen next because it's actually, it's surreal. 
And I don't think, you know, I don't think the U.S. has ever had this level of leadership. And I think people just, I think it's made people realize how polarized American society is and how you have the East Coast and the West Coast. And, um, and then you have people thinking, well, you know, the Americans voted for him. There is a chance, significant chance that they'll vote for him again in November. So I think they're beginning to see America as highly polarized, um, therefore very difficult to predict, um, highly volatile, and also they feel as if they've sort of walked away from their global responsibility, because this is the time where they were meant to sort of really step up and show their leadership. And, um, and they have, you know, and, and obviously you've, you've, you've You've had the um, breakdown between relationship with the WHO and the US and you know, this whole sort of America first. And people only follow leaders if they feel that those leaders care about them. And when you have an America first mantra, who's going to follow other than just the Americans who have that sort of insular mind? You know, we're in a world that is highly connected. The reason why, because of the pandemic is because we're highly connected. Our communications are connected. And if you look, if you read the black swan theory, um, this is only yet to continue. America cannot isolate itself from the rest of the world. It is, you know, we, it, we are all part of one human fabric and with global warming and the, you know, and, and climate change and so forth, America cannot address this. America, they're no longer America problems. They're world problems that need to be addressed globally. And you know, America retreating from its leadership role um, is a huge cause for concern. And then you have obviously China, the economic power moving towards the east. So is you know, so who's going to take up the leadership role if America isn't? Is it going to be China? I mean, already you're beginning to see a plurality, rather a duality of you know, of Team China, Team America, and countries are going to be falling underneath these two teams. And, um, and you're going to probably then end up having parallel supply chains where these countries won't be able to do business or travel with each other. And there'll be all sorts of sort of inter-sanctions. Um, but then even the Western countries are thinking, you know, naturally we will align with, with America, but what are they doing? I mean, do they really share our values? So is it just going to be America alone? And then China and it's, you know, it, it's sort of like pro-China partners and then a third, you know, run by Europe. I mean, it's, it, it's a dark time that we're in. And, well, you know, yeah. yeah, it can't be good for business either because uh, uh, I was just talking to somebody in Japan. He is a very well-known investor, a very well-known individual um, who is investing into um, co-working uh, facilities. Yeah. And uh, he just asked me point blank, he said, Alex, what, you know, we were considering a project in New York City. What's going to happen? So I had to almost defend America <clears throat> as much as I sometimes criticize our behavior and sometimes criticize our cultural intolerances and so forth. I also uh, had to defend our position and say, listen, the real estate is probably going to be uh, in, the, uh, in the better position a little bit later. And you may have some better terms and so forth, but um, this cannot be good for business. Uh, but let me ask you about this. Uh, let's take BRIC, for example, right? Brazil, India, China, uh, Russia, uh, you know, the, the coalition. That did not necessarily uh, work either, or maybe it still has an opportunity to work. But certainly, uh, it, 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 it did, not have a, did not have any movement or, or any momentum, I should say, that was, uh, you know, somewhat noticeable. 
Not only that, there was talk of currency, of switching to different currency, international currency and away from the dollar. Um, I'm very concerned myself that uh, perhaps now countries will think twice about uh, you know, investing into, into the currency, investing into the United States, businesses, and so forth. But uh, what are your thoughts on, 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 on those types of coalitions and whether in the near future it may actually work? Well, I mean, you know, BRIC was a very interesting acronym um, and, you know, sounds very plausible. But the fact is you can't put India and China together because India and China next door, they've got they've got border disputes. Um, India is aligning itself geopolitically with the US and the West and against China. Um, Pakistan is moving over towards China. So you already have these sort of countries that are forming, you know, um, you know, under their respective teams. And, um, and, you know, naturally, you're going to look, you're going to see, obviously, the US, China, and to a lesser extent, India, um, being quite major economic players, and then obviously, the EU bloc. And so, um, so just because they're lumped together in an acronym, it doesn't mean that they're going to form coalitions as such. Um, and actually, India and China is going to be a very interesting relationship to watch in the long term because there is a natural, um, they're both growing and they, um, and they both have um, some serious border issues with each other. And they, um, and they, and I think the, you know, India is going to very much offer itself to the West as a bulwark against China because of its geographical location. And, um, and I think, you know, potentially what you're going to see is you're going to see a future of uh, where at the moment you see the U.S. polarized, but I think you're going to see the world polarized. You're going to see, you know, two camps and it's going to be very much like you, you play with the Chinese, you don't play with us um, and vice versa. And, um, and you have countries already who are very much like, you know, we'll take the Chinese, you know, you know we'll follow the Chinese because the Chinese are giving money in terms of the infrastructure and so forth. So, you know, the U.S. now has competition. It has another country that is rich enough to go around the world and offer incentives to the various different governments to say, you know, um, play by our rules. So, you know, it's, it's going to be an interesting decade. And, and the EU still has issues. You know, they are you know, now 27 countries after the UK leaves. Um, so they still have their own internal issues of how to really um, be united. And so they've got their own internal issues. So it's difficult for them to really take a lead on the world stage. So what you're left with is really the US and China. Let's talk about uh, UK for a moment. Um, yeah. I know we, you know, with, with COVID and uh, now the, the issues in, in the United States, we completely forgot about Brexit, right? Um, but nevertheless, that's still a topic. That's still a very important topic, and not just for UK itself, but also for the world economy. Uh, we're seeing uh, some of the issues that we have now in China, also in Hong Kong, uh, as it impacts the economy, as it impacts the economic, uh, uh, not, I wouldn't call it fallout, but certainly a hiccup, certainly a, um, a dent. So uh, where is UK now in terms of Brexit, in terms of economic uh, position? And, um, you know, wh what does it mean for the UK businesses? What does it mean for your business, for example? What does it mean for the entrepreneurs that are trying to uh, raise money all over the world and in Europe, your European relations? Tell us more about that. Well, obviously, from an investment perspective, um, 
the UK has always been an attractive destination, mainly because of its global appeal and um, and its sort of soft power on the back of um, you know English being a widely spoken country and people having a sense of cultural um, affinity and familiarity with um, with the UK. Um, what's happened, I think, in terms of Brexit is you have two types of investors. You have the type of investor that are very risk adverse. And so when they see uncertainty, be it Brexit, political turmoil, um, or be it uh, the you know COVID pandemic, they actually freeze their investments. And then you have another type of investor that's more opportunistic, that actually has an appetite for a risk, and they actually start looking for opportunities. And so when Brexit was announced, you had a lot of international money uh, floating around, sniffing the property market um, for, you know, will Brexit result in a, um, you know, in a temporary reduction in property prices that we can plow our money in with you know um, knowing that the uk and especially london is resilient and will therefore come back again and so you've, you've got sort of different sort of investment approaches i think with brexit is um the country was absolutely obsessed for a number of years on brexit uh, in the run-up to the referendum after the referendum and then when finally we um the nation decided that it is going to go ahead um i think the combination of the of, of COVID and Brexit, it's you know it's a bad combination for the economy for the UK. Um, you know the UK has announced a number of economic stimulus. I think there's a huge concern of how the hell are we going to pay this back, um, and um, and you know and we don't want to then depress the economy by then raising taxes. Um, so perhaps what you may see is more targeted taxes, sort of wealth-focused taxes, maybe mansion taxes will come up, come up again. Um, and then also a lot of people are calling for, you know, treat this debt almost like wartime reparations where it won't, it will be paid off across decades uh, to minimize the impact. Um, and so, um, so I think that is, you know, the issue. And I think, you know, the present government at the moment are probably concerned that at some point there's going to be a review and why has the UK got one of the largest numbers in terms of, you know, its infections and death rate, uh, you know, per capita. Um, so I think they're politically worried as well about their own um, sort of legacy. So there's a lot of, there's a, there's a lot of um, you know, issues at play. But London, London itself is different than the rest of the UK. It does have global appeal. For multiple factors, you know, um, including schools, quality of life, rule of law, property as an asset class, and diversity. People feel, people come from all over the world here, and within a year they say, you know what, I feel at home. You know, what's amazing is that I was taken, um, as a matter of fact, it was um, after uh, you and I met in London, and then yeah. a couple of days later, I was flying back, and um, uh, the taxi driver, the cab driver, who was, uh, I think it was maybe an Uber driver, who yeah. was picking me up, and um, he was from Pakistan as well. And uh, we started chatting, and I was curious to, to learn more about his life here in, in London and uh, the community, and we just had a really, really wonderful uh, conversation. I always love to talk to you know, cab drivers and Uber drivers and so forth. Always, uh, there's just some amazing life stories and just stories in general. And you know what he said? He said he said something very similar. Is that you know, with all the issues, all the problems that we have in UK, I understand Brexit. I understand the desire to be strong, independent, and so forth and so on. But I also understand the importance of being part of the global economic community. Uh, obviously, being close to Europe as well, and. Um, also, uh, 
the quality of life, the, the diversity, I feel at home. I feel more at home here than I feel in Pakistan. And uh, it kind of struck me because um, uh, it is very true about some of the other cities, including uh, the, the uh, city-states like Hong Kong, New York City, uh, to a certain extent, uh, you know, some of the European cities, Amsterdam. Every time I go there, I feel, I feel, I almost feel like, you know, I've never left New York, um, you know, and, and some of the other ones. So uh, with everything that, with all that understanding and all that um, diversity and commonalities and so forth, um, how is it that we have so much difference in the middle of the countries, right? With UK, some, so much polarization. In the United States, look at the, look at the opposition, look at the opposite sides. We're, we're almost divided on, you know, by the middle or in the middle, I should say, equally divided, right? Half of the country. Uh, so things are so polarized. Why is that? What is your opinion of that? I think it's because familiarity breeds affinity. And what I mean by that is if you are in physical close proximity with other races and you become friends with them, you go to school with them, you date them, you do business with them, you go out and have a meal with them, you understand each other's cultures, it breeds an affinity. And, um, and I think if you do not interact with them, then it breeds, it's a great breeding ground for racism and prejudice. And, um, you know, I married a Italian Catholic, incredibly posh, privileged guy, totally opposite to me. You know, I sort of came into the marriage with a little box of mangoes and, you know, so, so we were so different. He was incredibly wealthy. I wasn't. He's white. I'm brown. He's Catholic. I'm Muslim. I mean, completely different. But, you know, it was the fact that London is such a melting point that actually when you get to know each other, you can overcome socioeconomic barriers, gender barriers, you know, um, sexual orientation barriers. And I think one has to make an effort to be familiar because you can also live in cities like London and New York. And although you're surrounded by people from other cultures and socioeconomic groups, you make zero effort and you end up actually in your little cocoon only making friends with people who are similar to you, going on social media and the algorithms reinforce that you only follow people who have similar sort of thinking patterns. So you have to actively be conscious of ensuring that you really do immerse yourself with the diversity of people across not just race and gender and socioeconomic, but diversity of thought. I mean, I'm, I'm a conservative, but I like to read The Guardian. I like to read, you know, Russia Today. I like to read the state news of Iran. I want to know the global perspectives, even if they are in direct opposition to the core beliefs that I have, I want to learn, I want to understand. And as we perhaps get older, we sometimes almost form a wall around us. And, you know, we walk around with a little filter bubble in our brain. And, you know, social makes it worse. Algorithms on Netflix make it worse. It's like oh, you like this documentary, here's a hundred more that you can watch that has the exact same political leaning. Um, you know, it just reinforces the brain. So I think the more as human beings we understand how the brain works, the more we can understand how we can be manipulated into thought tribes and reinforce those thoughts. And we should therefore understand the tools and strategies to break out of those and, you know, and to really 
take the opportunity of living in you know diverse communities to really evolve our brains. Zana, uh, I guess I'll ask you another question, and and we'll um, you know first of all it's a, it's a privilege and a pleasure to talk to you today, you. and um, so many listeners will enjoy this conversation, but uh, the question I have for you is. What is your advice to a young girl or a boy for that matter who are entrepreneurial, but they may be in Pakistan, they may be in Ukraine, they may be in um, uh, Africa someplace, they may be in uh, Dubai, China, what have you. I mean, look at you. You, you came from um, modest beginnings, uh, from... Um, uh, you've built a business. Uh, you're in the middle of, of the melting pot, London itself. You uh, have been successful with uh, a lot of very amazing projects all over the world. This is a tough act to follow for somebody. Or is it? Or is there a formula for somebody to pursue this and to become successful? Tell us. Do you know, I, um, I think a lot of it was actually down to the fact that my, my parents were educated. Um, my mother came from quite a powerful family in Pakistan. Both my parents were entrepreneurs. They had their own businesses. They started them young. So I think that, you know, I'm not that classic success story. Um, I pretty much just observed my parents and soaked it all up. And like a robot, I actually just did exactly what they did. I think the true heroes of our society are the ones that didn't have those role models um, in their family. And they, and they had an inner voice that drove them. So I wouldn't consider myself a success story. I just continued on the shoulders of my parents. And my, par- my mother especially came from a privileged background. My father didn't. But the way I was brought up was a very middle-class you know, um, background, mother working, professional, and so forth. And I think for those people who don't have those role models who then succeed, I think they are incredible. Um, what I did have when I was growing up is um, I sought out people that inspired me who had built businesses by just reading everything about them and you know and and i think if you don't have positive role models in your life the beauty about the internet is actually you can find people um even if it means following them on linkedin instagram podcasts you know you can develop almost although it's one way you can develop an emotional relationship with a thought leader in your industry and consume everything there is um, because there's so much content. Um, so I think that, you know, I think the opportunity is that there is a lot of information there. Um, and just, I think, you know, if you don't have the role models in your life, you know, I was fortunate to have them, is to find the digital equivalents and follow them online, have that aspiration. And I think most importantly is not to be scared of failure. Um, and I think, you know, I think particularly for women, um, it, you know, I mean, I'm in my 40s. It took me decades to really unravel the social conditioning of be a nice girl, be polite. You know, I'm now a bit of a pushy nightmare. Um, but it, it, it took me a long time. I mean, it took me from 20 to 40, 20 years to just be conscious of all these layers and layers of conditioning 
that society has just from a gender perspective, let alone the race perspective. So I think, you know, there's a lot of invisible forces and it takes decades to unravel them and understand them. And when you do, you know, at our level, it's important to then mentor and give back because whatever my parents were, they didn't really, they weren't born and brought up in this country, which is a very different experience than, you know, I mean, they had a hard life. They came here when people would, I mean, my father used to walk down the street and there were signs um, that said, no Irish, no dogs, no packies. Um, and he said that was the norm. And I said, how did you react to it? And he said, well, it's easy. I just worked twice as hard and expected half, half as much. Um, Whereas, you know, I think our generation, we expect equality and we fight for it. And I'm really proud of the people who are protesting around the world. Rosanna, thank you so much. We're, I'm very inspired by you. I'm very uh, enamored by you. Uh, and you. Um, I think a lot of our listeners will, if not all of them, will feel the same way. Um, very inspiring. Your passion shows, and um, you know it's a lot of hard work. You know the formula is that there's a lot of hard work that's involved. Yeah. Whether you you're trying to assimilate, or you're trying to adapt, and in many cases you have no choice but to adapt. Right. That's what that's what makes immigrants so powerful and so um, you know, or, or people who were born in immigrant families. Uh, I'm an immigrant myself, and I had to go through the you know similar type of experiences here in the United States. But thank you for your for for you being our guest, and we're wishing you all the best. and And uh, it's a pleasure of being with you. Great, thank you so much, Alex, for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation. <laughs>